Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This episode is from day one of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023, and it's called Insatiable, My Hunger for Life. Shobha Day, in conversation with Chitra Banerjee Divakurani. wonderful festival. Are you all excited to be here? <laughs> Let's hear that excitement. <laughs> I'm also excited to be here and especially to be with Shova on stage. Such a wonderful occasion, her new book. We are going to have a lot of fun and we are going to talk about some important serious things. So I'm going to get started right away. And ask Shobha, please tell us a little bit about this new book. What was the inspiration behind it? And what was the writing process? Thank you, Chitra. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, JLF, 16th edition. Thank you, Trimurti, uh, Namita Gokhale, William Dalrymple, Sean Joy, Anubhav, Shams, the entire team uh, behind uh, Teamwork and JLF. I have been here every single year, and I've seen it grow into something so magnificent, and it fills our hearts with joy as writers to see so many readers here on a hot lunchtime weekday. So thank you all for being here. And I'd like to very much thank the Kanjivaram Queen, Usha, who I've known for over 50 years and watched her uh, growth as a singer, and I'm happy to report as a reporter that Usha's dates are booked up till the end of 2024. She is on the road performing nonstop, and it's, I heard her last night, her voice was as spectacular, as wonderful as when I first heard it. And of course, Chitra, the mistress of spices, uh, what can be better than to launch Insatiable with a writer I have deeply admired, deeply, deeply admired uh, her, for her skills as a writer. I respect all that she stands for, and I'm honored that you're in conversation with me, Chitra. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shobha. This was so beautifully said, so gracious. I'm equally happy to be here on stage with you. And just like you said, it's so wonderful to be back here for me. This is the first time I'm coming back since the Forest of Enchantments. Because of COVID, we were not able to come in between. But it's lovely to see the energy, to feel the energy. And now, back to my first question. What was the inspiration behind this wonderful book? What was the writing process? Just tell us a little bit about the book. Well, a, a book is as good as the first few people who believe in it and uh, are willing to publish it. A lot of us think we've written masterpieces. Then it goes through a literary agent. It goes through many processes. It goes through several rejections. It goes through many publishers and their teams. And your masterpiece lies 
wherever it is in your head or in a laptop or if you've handwritten it and never sees the light of day. So each time a book of mine, I think this is the 25th one, gets published, I am actually filled with a lot of gratitude because if it had not been believed in, in this case, Kanishka, where are you? The brightest, smartest, youngest, hottest literary agent in Asia who I've known since he was a fraught 16-year-old, loved what I'd sent him initially and passed it on to two beauteous ladies who are here, uh, Trisha, my uh, editor, and Paolo Mi. And uh, when you sense excitement in your editor and your publisher, that they are not only just willing to publish the book, but are actually excited by the topic and are excited with you, not as a commercial decision because, you know, no book, each book comes with its own kismet. There's no guarantee it's going to make money for the publishers, but that they love it. It gives you that special charge which says, go ahead and just give it your all. So Insatiable for me started actually the working title, which I still quite like, was Searching for Anuradha. Anuradha was the name given to me, my nakshatra name, which was changed by my father's older brother. And I always felt there was this Anuradha lurking within, who I was desperate to reconnect with. So what started off as looking for Anuradha, then became a much bigger book about food and friendship and love, dealing with age, dealing with um, COVID, coming out of that funk, all of it. Uh, but the real trigger was actually Anuradha. So maybe the next book can be the real story of Anuradha. Still, uh, I'm still to get to know her better, just about finding out who she is. Yes, that's beautiful. You take a whole journey with Anuradha, you start the book with her, and you end the book with her but we'll leave it to the readers to discover what you discover at the end of the book. So, this book has a lot of wonderful food writing in it. So tell me a little bit about what does food mean to you and maybe share one food story from the book sure. for us. You know, food is something so basic, so primal. We take it for granted, we undermine its importance in our lives, but I, I always say this, that when you're born, when you come into the world outside the cocoon of your mother's womb, you come out bawling and crying because actually you're hungry. So hunger is something also that we don't place that much importance on our own hungers. So Insatiable is not only about food, and I keep telling young journalists who are interviewing me in an earnest and naive and wonderful way, so madam, is it all about recipes that you've tried at home? No, honey, it isn't. It isn't a food book in that sense. But yes, food is a metaphor for many things. I value food a lot. Food connects, food is home, food is love, food is emotion. Uh, I am not a food writer per se because I don't know enough about it, but I would say that we are a family that is quite obsessive about food, like Bengali husband, you know. I mean, they wake up enjoying a meal and already thinking and dreaming about the next meal and the meal after the meal after. So I cannot and will not take food for granted because it has played a very strong emotional role in my own life and it has forged some deep and wonderful friendships 
over shared meals and conversations. And uh, like I often feel, we are voyeuristic when it comes to how other people eat, right? Even on an airplane, I'm always looking at what my co-passenger is eating. How is that person eating? What that person is eating? Why they've picked the uh, noodles over the upma and so on. Food tells you a lot about people, even the way they eat food. If it's indifferently eaten, you kind of get to know a little about that person's characteristics. So yeah. I have a lot of food stories in the book, Chitra, and you've just read it. And uh, most of them are about uh, food uh, eaten with people I've enjoyed being with or with family on special occasions and festivals. And in India, we have uh, three festivals a month sometimes. Each one is marked by specific foods like uh, Sankranti, uh, which- Pongal. Pongal, exactly. So I like the idea of uh, talking about food because it makes people think about food and maybe also eat more, eat what they may not have eaten for a long time. It reminds them of their childhood. I mean, my tilka laddus that I still think about are the ones that my grandmother made with my mother in our kitchen. No one makes them anymore. I buy them commercially. So these are certain food memories that surfaced, which I wanted to share with readers. Well, one of the food memories is related to my next question, which is that in this book you write movingly and poignantly about COVID and the effects of COVID yeah. in the larger society, but also in your life. Yes. And that is connected, I think, with a very beautiful food memory. Will you share that with us? And also tell us, tell us about how COVID affected you. Remember a friend invited you. You wanted a big party, but you couldn't have one because of yes. COVID. But a friend came to your rescue. Yes. Well, COVID was something that it's uh, stating the obvious, but it flattened the world. And for those few months, in a way, in a cruel way, we were all equal because we were all equally vulnerable and we didn't know whether we'd wake up the next morning or not. So it was a time for a great deal of introspection for I think most of us. And some of the home truths that emerged with enforced isolation also made us question a lot of the relationships we thought were precious, we thought were forever, but in fact were so brittle. And uh, my husband and I discussed that later. And he said, this is the time for shedding and not for adding. And you just learn to cut the flab and you learn somehow to move away from relationships that have become time bombs. And uh, the food memory that you talked about, I think I start the book with that, is yes. also to do a lot with friendship. And I've invested in all my friends very deeply as they have in me. And for that, I'm so very grateful because you know, it's 50 years, 55 years of, uh, of close friendships. We may not always meet, but we know that uh, the person's got your back. And to me, that's what friendship means. Uh, there's a friend right here in the front row, Minal, who I've known for over 50, 50 years, definitely. And uh, we share a love for books. Uh, so it was my last birthday, not the one that I just celebrated on the 7th, my 75th, leading up to that. And uh, I was all set to celebrate it in Pune with a few friends who had booked their tickets. We were all just about coming out of COVID. 
and depression and feeling really fantastic. Oh, we can go out again. Restaurants are open. We can visit friends. We don't have to be masked up. And at the last minute, uh, Omicron and, was and declared. And you had planned a big party. I planned a party, and it got cancelled because everyone said, don't be ridiculous. I mean, even if you're reckless enough to go ahead and host it, no one will turn up. And then you'll be accused of being an irresponsible citizen, which indeed I would have been. It was a sensible decision to cancel that party. But a good and true friend, she's not here today, honey, Manjit Kripalani, said, don't worry. Uh, I'm a member at a club which, can, which is allowing 15 people at a time on the lawn. Let's just have 15 family and friends. And let's make a night of it. And let's enjoy it till curfew, which was at 10 o'clock. So we met at 7.30 and we... We ate and we drank some wonderful wine, ate some wonderful food, uh, cheered ourselves up. I think the main point was to get our smiles back. It was more than the food. It was more than um, a glass of wine or a hot toddy. It was about feeling a sense of hope that we are there, we are together. We a are sense loving, of community. A sense right? of community, a deep sense of friendship. And it was, it was just wonderful, and I'll never forget the trouble and the courage of the few friends who did turn up to wish me on my birthday. I'll never forget that, and of course, my children and my family members. Well, I'm glad you talked about your children and your family, and I would love to ask you some more questions about the family, and how do, what does family mean to you? You talked about friends who are a particular kind of chosen family, but what about the family that birth and marriage, etc., bring to you? And how has the family reacted to this book? Because there's quite a bit about family in this book, and some of it is quite frank. Quite frank is a euphemism for pretty out there. So let me just say, at the moment, I'm not popular with three of my family members. Uh, I just got a text this morning from one of the daughters, and she says, Mother, I'm either being scolded in the book, or I'm scolding you, or I'm crying, or you're crying. Is that your memory of me during this past one year? The other one was counting every line and every word and saying, you know, so-and-so has got many more lines and paragraphs. You've been so discriminatory. And it's clear I know exactly where I stand in the hierarchy of love and so on. Uh, my husband said, uh, he took the book to Alibag and read it uh, peacefully without me looking over his shoulder to see which page he was on. And he called and he said, had I read this book 40 years ago, that's how long we've been married, I would have understood you much more. So yes, it is a very candid and frank book. It's equally candid about myself, my failings, my uh, vulnerabilities, my shortcomings. And it's not a book that's pointing fingers at all. It's a truthful uh, account. Uh, it's a very honest look at myself in relationship to the people in my life. And in the process, of course, uh, in family sensitivities are always uh, extremely on the surface. We all have a very, very thin skin when it comes to any comment from family. And uh, I know my 86-year-old sister, who's a feisty, tough, um, who has a gym trainer and um, you know goes uh, to the North Pole and South Pole and Gobi Desert and all of it in her 80s 
is going to say, but where am I in this account? Where am I in this book? I'm bracing myself for that. I haven't yet found a good enough explanation to give her, but it's just that it's a book about 12 months. So it's people, it's, it's a very specifically structured memoir. It's about 12 months, 365 days, 300 pages, 75 years compressed into that. So it's a narrative that's very, very uh, particular. If I didn't meet someone during those 12 months, or they didn't have an emotional, any interaction with me, then they're not in the book. As simple as that. It's not about exclusion. I've tried to be as inclusive as possible, but you can never please family, as we all know. <laughs> this is so true. I have two sons, and they have told me categorically, you cannot put us in any of your books. And until now, I was fighting that. I was saying, but why not? But after hearing your story, <laughs> I was actually thinking, no family. I'm not going to write about them. You're very brave. I think I would face a lot of family flack. I don't think I'm ready for that. Just call it two sons and <laughs> let them figure. Which one is which, right? Okay, well, you talked about the 12-month structure. I was very interested that you chose this 12-month structure for your book. And you also started by telling the reader about your favorite desk calendar, a little plastic desk calendar that you get every year. So tell us about you know, how you keep track of time, how you, said, how you divided up this book, why did you decide to do it this way? Let's like, get a glimpse into your writer's mind. Well, it's a, if it's a memoir to mark a significant birthday, and I have done memoirs when I turned 50 and 60 and 70, 75 seems like a good number because I'm not sure I want to write anything about turning 80 if I'm alive to write it in the first place. So this was like a great hurrah to myself and to my life uh, with family and friends and food. Uh, all of all three very important to me. And it was uh, like an upbeat, cheerful way of recounting something that means a lot to me in, in, on these three platforms. How do you combine that is a literary device, which actually uh, Paolo May was very good enough when she saw the manuscript. And she saw that it was sort of wandering. And she said, why don't we bring it back on track? And that's what a good editor does. And uh, we need a, a, a structure. We need a spine. We need uh, uh, arteries and veins and nerves and arms and legs. It can't just be going all over the place yeah. like a stream of consciousness thing. It, that can be very tiresome and also very self-indulgent. And the last thing a writer should be is narcissistic and that's self-absorbed to imagine that every line that you're putting out there is going to be of deep and abiding interest to your reader. So thank you, Paulami, for that. Uh, and once that structure was in place, it really was quite easy to take it forward and, uh, and um, you know, keep writing as it was happening. So uh, it was a very accurate representation of the last um, 12 months, which have been difficult for a lot of us coming to terms with post-COVID. Some of us have lost um, close family members, friends. And in that sort of a state, it was important to find coping mechanisms. And words have always been my refuge. 
and my salvation, my redemption, my everything. But once a book is done, I think of it like those uh, happiness lanterns that one lights and forget and you send it off. It go. Yeah, you, you send it off with a wish and you watch that lantern soar into the sky till it's a little golden dot. And then it's no longer your own. It's out there and it's out there. So I like the idea of surrendering a book completely once I have finished with it and it's uh, out there in the bookstores. I don't hang on to it emotionally. I don't carry it with me. It's not baggage that I necessarily want to carry because I'm already on to something else and the next thing. And that desk calendar is my savior. It's a little plastic desk calendar of a specific kind with leaves. And if my life is not written on that calendar in terms of appointments or commitments, then those don't exist, as simple as that. So it's very, very important for me to keep myself um, in check about especially time management and uh, commitments, yeah. I loved what you said about letting go of the book and allowing it to soar away. And I think, you know, once the book is written and it's out of our hands, it's really in the reader's hands, right? And uh, that's actually at once. It is both scary, but it's also wonderful. And what happened to my page? It disappeared. <laughs> I had a piece of paper with all my questions. Oh, thank you. And here it is. Okay, and now you told us about the family and what they felt. I was very interested to read the many wonderful and wise quotations and funny quotations that you've put in this book. But the one that struck me most is almost at the end of the book and it's by the writer C.S. Lewis. And it says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Can you tell me a little bit about the importance of this thought in your life and maybe share with us a vulnerable moment where, you know, if you could change, it would have been nice. Gosh, that's a tough one. Chitra, I wasn't prepared for going back that far in my life. But yes, I, they sh honestly, nostalgia for a lot of people, uh, they give it immense importance. Looking back is something very, very key to their understanding of the present and also about planning their future. But like I say, in the, in the, uh, at the start of the book, that in many ways I feel I'm a vagabond, I'm a loafer, I'm a gypsy, I'm a warrior, all of which I indeed am. So the time to look back is really limited because I'm very much a creature of the moment. And uh, uh, especially things which have caused you pain in the past, why revisit them? Uh, you're not going to be able to change any of it. In fact, you're going to be tapping into an emotion that you've, be, you've probably dealt with 30, 40, 50 years ago. So um, I can't really, in all honesty, think of that one turning point in my life that I said, oh gosh, if I could only change that, because it's, a, it's kind of pointless to look back and think, I could have changed it, I should have changed it. But the point is you didn't. 
and life is about choices and you made those choices tough and painful as they might have been but they were your choices you may as well own them and uh, carry on i think that's a great way to think actually i think that way too because when we think back on painful incidents not only have we suffered them once but we're suffering them over and over so i i do agree with you but can you then talk about how you take the moment and how do you transform the moment as you move into the future? Because that's what C.S. Lewis is talking about and you're resonating with it. Yeah, there has to be introspection. There always is. We may not be consciously aware. You don't sort of sit down and say, listen, I'm going to introspect. But even as you're living the moment, you are analyzing it and wondering how it's going to impact maybe tomorrow or this evening or you're making some kind of plans it's not all all of it is not arbitrary or eccentric or wavered it cannot be i mean much as i'd like to be a woman who loiters with no responsibility uh, or frolics with absolutely nothing to worry about that that's not always so so the present is um, is a beautiful way of staying in it because that's all that matters. This is the moment that matters right now. I'm talking to you on this stage. I'm looking at all the wonderful people, the readers there. I'm looking at Usha, Usha, Kanjivaram Queen. And th at this moment, this is important to me. What happens next? I have no control over none of us. We don't have any control that's over right. even our next breaths. So, I really am not preoccupied with trying to control my future or even plan it that meticulously because even that is not in my hands. Thank you. I really like that answer. Yes. People, if you get excited about answers, you know, you can clap, you can make some noise. You can <laughs> Thank you. You're forcing an applause out of the audience. That's unfair. No, no, no. Listen, I you don't have to, okay? <laughs> Clap only if you feel like. If you, if you uh, like a question a lot, you can clap after the question also. <laughs> and I think you will like this question. So in the book, you mention many names that you are known by. And just to prove to you that I really read the book, it's on page 281. Let's <laughs> the names. Yes. The names are, some of them, she has a lot more, but I picked uh, some of the favorite ones. Mataji, Mummy, Mad Mom, Super Mom, Shobhs, Shobha Pishi, I like that Bengali one, Shobha Rani. Now, all of these, who are you really? Tell us about who you really are. Who's the real Shobha that you think of? That's uh, such an existential yes. kind of question. Yes, uh, yes, please feel. <laughs> great question. But uh, Chitra, it took even a Gautam Buddha seven years to figure out who he was, who am I, uh, to be able to answer that. Neither am I Albert Camus or uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. I'm still looking, I'm still searching because I don't think any of us ever in our lives can fully answer that question because we never know. And we are changing and evolving all the time. Uh, but 
Labels is something that maybe the younger, the, um, the millennials and uh, Generation Z are very quick to categorize themselves and other people. So all the names that you talked about are a part of who I am. I mean, it's a composite. So I cannot pick one identity and say, this is who I am. I really and truly don't know. Neither do I wish to know. Neither do I want to be on top of that who am I uh, persona. Uh, I feel like a chameleon. And I hope I can just keep changing and changing and finding new people within because they will keep me interested in me a little more than I am, <laughs> maybe sometimes. And uh, most of us get a bit too bogged down by a question of identity. Um, no, no, no doubt identity is very key to grounding us and telling us who we are. But to get over obsessed by identity and the politics of identity sometimes can be crippling and I, I never want to be in that position where a label that has either been thrust on me or which people may identify me by is something that I have to either live up to, be apologetic about, or explain on any level. This is, this is the package. This is who I am. Take, you know, pretty much take it or leave it. Right, and I was, yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. See, people like your answer. Uh, I like your answer too. So I was uh, noticing how most of these names are names that people have given you. But one name that you seem to relate to more and you're searching for is your birth name, which was changed, Anuradha. So tell us a little bit about that search for Anuradha, what that means for you, because I think you come back to it towards the end of the book. I mean, Anuradha, for, to start with, if, uh, if our ancestors named us as per the nakshatra at the time of your birth, there must have been some very good reason for it. It isn't something that was done arbitrarily, right? There is some resonance with that particular title, that particular name, and that is meant to reverberate and create some kind of mystic vibrations. I don't know enough about it. I can only say that there has to be some logical explanation why we are given names based on the akshar. Which, under which we are born, the nakshatra under which we are born. So Anuradha was something I continued to identify with even as a young girl. But for some reason, uh, Shobha, it was shortened because my, my maiden name was Rajadaksha. And my uncle felt Anuradha Rajadaksha, I'd be writing the Mahabharata each time I was signing papers or uh, uh, writing exam papers. Or it was so shortened. And Shobha must have been the most nauseatingly popular name at that time because I had six Shobhas in my class. So it was Shobha number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. Even the teachers were bewildered. <laughs> so it was so banal. It was so pedestrian. It was so common. I always felt Anuradha, which is a beautiful classical name. And uh, I still feel a deep sense of uh, compatibility with Anuradha, I have never felt a Shobha. I will never feel a Shobha. I will die Anuradha. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And now for something fun. It is kind of related to the book and to the title, but also outside of it, which is 
You promised me that today you're going to share some of your beauty secrets with us. Not you two, Chitra. Not you two, Chitra. <laughs> the nation really the wants, nation to wants to know. <laughs> the nation wants to know. Okay. Yes, nation. The nation want wants to know. Right. So at 75, I'm feeling like some kind of a freak show, you know, uh, because people come up to me and ask these questions that what, if, what do you do? And they ask me, Madam, how do you preserve yourself? And I always say in vinegar, I lie down in a tub every night and hope for the best that I'll wake up nicely uh, pickled, refreshed, whatever. But to answer you facetiously and then a little more seriously, it has to be a combination of Macher Jhol and Maharashtrian Amti, uh, both of which I think are staples and Khichdi, which I like, the Gujarati Khichdi, uh, which is my preferred food. It also reminds me of love and childhood and marriage and um, all that goes with that. But I would say uh, it is really, I often joke about this as well, you have to conspire to be born into the right gene pool. If you can achieve that and figure out exactly which gene pool you're going to be born into, I think you're kind of sorted. Because my father was close to 100 when he passed away. And he was ramrod straight, his skin was great, his mind was all there, he was a handsome figure of a man. My sister, as I mentioned, Mandakini at 86 is a very handsome lady, very fit, very all there. And uh, my mother was a, a beautiful lady, a homemaker. Uh, I guess it runs in the family. And uh, Pond's cold cream definitely helps. <laughs> What about mental attitudes? I think mental attitudes have to do with it too. Discipline, I would say, but that's such a boring thing to say, oh gosh, you know, it's all about discipline. A bit of it, yes, definitely. Um, but a lot of it has to do with not abusing your system, seriously. It's, you've been given a few good attributes at birth over which uh, you really have no business to be taking any credit for. This is how you came into the world. The least you can do is whatever there is, you can look after yourself in a way that is sensible. I also think that what you said about living in the present, that really also helps, don't you? Because then oh, you yes. don't spend your time worrying or regretting. Oh, definitely. I think uh, a positive attitude, no matter how awful life may seem at times. And I think there's a line in the book where one of my daughters, Arundhati, when I'm feeling really, really wretched and low about myself, and she talks me through a, a very uh, depressed drive on the ghats of Mumbai. And she sends me at the end of this 45-minute conversation where she's comforting me and saying, you know, it's not going to be, it's not as terrible as you imagine. Whatever you think you're going through, it's not that terrible. And just two words that she sent me, seasons change. Seasons change is so deeply meaningful. Nothing is static. And my husband often uses this phrase that after every low tide, there's always a high tide. And I remind myself of that whenever things look really terrible. And um, there is always that sense of hope and optimism. And we all have it. And we all can live by that very simple and uh, very practical mantra. 
Seasons change, they do. Yeah. I really like that, seasons change. We could all live by that, yeah. isn't it? And it's a wonderful thing that seasons change. And so, I know there are, the, we do want to ask a, at least a couple people in the audience, we want to give you a chance. So start thinking of those great questions while I ask Shobha her last one from me. What's next for you, Madam Day? Madam Day is off to Brazil and Argentina as it was on my bucket list ever since I was a, a, a madcap teenager dreaming of l dancing the tango in a square in Buenos Aires. And on my birthday, my husband surprised me with tickets to Buenos Aires. He said, it was on your bucket list and we're going to make it happen. So now all he has to arrange is for a ponytail stranger to be waiting there, preferably Antonio Banderas. Javier Bardem, I'll settle for. And he has to dance with me in that square as per my fantasy. But I'm sure he'll be able to arrange that too because that's the kind of person he is. So yes, that's next. Wonderful, wonderful. I wish you bon voyage. And may you always have this irrepressible, insatiable love for life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.